Well, good morning, Stafford Baptist Church. It's my pleasure to bring you God's Word this morning as we gather in worship. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the pastors here at Stafford Baptist. I'd love to meet you before you leave this morning. And again, I invite you, uh, if this is your first time with us, to to go to our website, staffordbaptistchurch.org, and navigate to the menu there. And and right there you'll find a, a Connect card where you can fill out we can stay in touch with you. Uh, this morning we continue our, our sermon series in the book of beginnings in, in Genesis. So we started this series, if you remember, all the way back in, in November with the, the first verse in the Bible. And we finished the prologue of this book through the story of Noah back in February. So today we're, we're picking the book of Genesis back up again with the, the first patriarch, Abraham. So please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to our sermon text in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, where we're going to be in, in 11.10 through 12.9. Genesis 11.10 through 12.9. We're going to be in the book of Genesis for a few weeks until we pause for a summer series in June and July, where we're going to be going through the letters to the church, an overview of, of eight of Paul's letters but uh, today, Genesis eleven ten. But before we go any further, it's appropriate for us to, to pause and to pray, to ask God's help in our hearing and the proclaiming of God's word. So, so please pray with me once more. Father, we come to you, author of this holy word, to ask you this morning to give us eyes to see, ears to hear what Abram saw generations ago, Lord, that he heard your word and believed and obeyed. Lord, we pray that you would give us the same faith as we read your word this morning. Lord, that we too would see the beauties of the God who who makes these promises and in knowing your beauty, live our lives for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let me ask you this. If the world was in incredible danger, facing an an overwhelming evil, who would you choose to fight on our behalf? Who would you choose to fight on our behalf? In J.R.R. Tolkien's celebrated fiction series, The Lord of the Rings, the Dark Lord Sauron threatens to conquer and, and rule all of the known world. Well, and the, the only way that evil can be defeated is by destroying the One Ring, Sauron's ultimate weapon. And the only way to destroy that ring is to bring it to the fires of Mount Doom, right at the heart of Sauron's impenetrable fortress. Who would you send on that kind of mission? Probably a a powerful warrior, right? Lots of training and experience, impressive physique. Or if someone not physically powerful, someone incredibly wise. In the novel, there were lots of great candidates for this mission. Descendants of kings, experienced warriors, wizards. Well, if you know the story in the end... The ring was entrusted to the least likely candidate, a small and inexperienced hobbit named Frodo. From the beginning, you're you're not quite sure this was the right idea, such an important task, really the fate of the whole world in the balance, entrusted to, frankly, a nobody. Well... That's just fantasy. What what about the real world? The real world facing the overwhelming evil of not Sauron, but but sin. Not in a ring, but, but pervading every human heart. As we study through the book of Genesis, of a humanity created by God good, but ruined and cursed by sin's rebellion, we're, we're faced with the same question. Who to choose to send on the mission to destroy this evil of sin? 
Who is the offspring of woman to crush the head of the serpent? Where's the battle-scarred warrior to take on this task? How can we be sure it will all work out in the end? In our passage this morning, we see, see God making the most unlikely of choices. Calling the pagan nobody, Abram, to be the father of nations through whom the curse will be swallowed up in blessing. In this choice, God shows his absolute faithfulness. Faithful to his promise to bring about universal blessing through the offspring of Abram, Jesus Christ. The big idea for our passage this morning is is this. God calls nobodies, promises them great blessings, and empowers them to obey by faith. God calls nobodies, promises them great blessings, and empowers them to obey by faith. God graciously calls Abram, no one of, of note, worshiper of false gods without an heir, to receive the promise that they form the core of the rest of the, the Old Testament. This, this story of God's redemption. Promise of, of land, a great nation, and blessing for all families of the earth. And miraculously, Abram, Abram obeys. He leaves everything he knows and travels countless miles to a land he's never seen. He walks by faith not by sight. God calls nobodies, promises them great blessings, and empowers them to obey by faith. This morning we're going to read the passage in stages, not all at once, and those stages are going to follow our, our three points this morning. So, so first, Abram the nobody in 11.10 through 32, Abram the nobody. Second, God's very great promises in chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. And then finally, third, Abram's very great faith. That in chapter 12, 4 through 9. So Abram the nobody, God's very great promises, and Abram's very great faith. And a quick note before we do anything else, in case anyone is confused, Abram will be renamed Abraham in Genesis 17. Uh, But my apologies in advance, I know I'm going to mix it up at some point here. So Abram is Abraham. Let's, let's start by reading this morning, Genesis eleven ten through 32, and our first point, Abram the nobody. Let's read, Genesis eleven ten. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arpachad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he had fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of, its, of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. 
Terah took Abram, his son in law, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter in law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Well, when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Well, you should be familiar with this kind of passage in Genesis. We've seen a few of them already, right? A a record of descendants. These are the generations of. He starts in verse 10. This is the fifth such list that Moses records for us in the book of Genesis. We've had the heavens and the earth, Adam, Noah, the sons of Noah, and now fifth, Shem. These are something like chapter markers in Moses' book, signaling that that for him, the, the story is moving forward to the next chapter. Here it moves forward in these verses some 390 years, if you count up the generations. To, to remind you, since it's been a while since we've been in Genesis, Moses has recently recorded the account of the flood, a cataclysmic judgment of mankind. A mankind that says, whose every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So God in the flood blots out mankind from the earth, all except Noah and his family, who by grace through faith are saved by an ark. But the new humanity descended from Noah, creation 2.0, They have the same sinful nature. Noah's sons, the the fourth generation list in the book, spread out into all nations in chapter 10. But some disobey the command to fill the earth, and in chapter 11 instead try to make a name for themselves with a, a tall tower in Babel. Well, God judges them too and scatters them now with diverse languages. Seventy families, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth. Well, with that, we we come to to what we read this morning. Moses fast-forwards another ten generations, 390 years here in chapter 11. It's something like a, a movie montage covering years in just seconds. You might have recalled some of these names from what we studied back in chapter 10. That chapter lists the generations of the three sons of, of Noah, Japheth, Ham, and, and Shem. Well, now Japheth and Ham take a back seat. They're, they're not mentioned again. Just like Cain took a back seat to Seth in Genesis 5. The story is, is moving forward, but now with Shem and, and his family. What's the point Well, the point is that God's line is not lost in the scattering of the nations after Babel. The the stage is set, the diverse and full world, for God's next act through Shem's line here. By the way, that that name Shem is where we get the word Semite, as in Semitic people, like, like the Jews. Here is their father. You notice as we read that their lives are getting shorter and shorter. What God had promised back in Genesis 6 verse 3. Man's days shall be only 120 years. The list moves us from from Shem in in verse 10 all the way down in verse 26 to to Terah. Again, the, the father of three sons. His sons Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is where the story slows down. The sixth generation of list in in verse 27 is the last generation list until chapter 25 with Ishmael. We're we're done with the primeval history of Moses' account. And now we start the story of the patriarchs. And in particular with, with Abram, the nobody. Well, how does his story begin well, in verse 27, it's, it's a description of his, his family. We get some details. Haran has a son, Lot. Lot's going to be very important in Abram's story. But, but Haran, Lot's father, dies. 
leaving Terah with his two sons and, and one grandson. It's a, it's a tiny family, and it's frankly inbred. Nahor marries his brother's daughter. But what's particularly important in verse 28 is, is where Haran dies. It's, it's where he lived, in, in Ur of the Chaldeans, you say there in verse 28. There were a few ancient places called Ur, but this is the one of the, the Chaldeans. The, the Chaldeans don't yet exist in history, so this is a note from the narrator distinguishing which Ur this is. You might know that name from the rest of the Bible. The, the Chaldeans are the empire of, of what will become Babylon. Yeah, the, the eventual arch enemies of God's people. The ones who will eventually siege and, and destroy Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, bringing them into to exile. Most important is that we understand that at this time, Terah's tiny, tiny inbred family, they were, they were moon worshippers. They were residing in the, the leading center of lunar religion. We know a lot about this city. It was the site of a, a famous archaeological discovery in the 1920s and 30s. This city is in the south of, of modern-day Iraq, near the, the Persian Gulf on the Euphrates Rivers. And this city, as, as they discovered it, was, was dominated by a massive three-staged ziggurat, or, or a temple. Each stage was, was colored distinctively with the top level in silver having a one-room shrine to Nana, the, the moon god for the Chaldeans. The city of, of Ur was, was barren of knowledge of the true god. Their lunar religion dominated life. Even Abram's father's name, Terah, is related to the word moon. In other words, Abram and his family were, were as pagan as pagans come. It's as God makes clear through Joshua in Joshua 24 verse 2. It reads, And Joshua said to all the peoples, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods. Not the ideal candidate, it would seem, for Yahweh's mission, a servant of other gods. Now, to add to that, in these verses we find that, that Abram has no child. In verse 30, it gets said two different ways. Sarah, Sarah his, his wife, was barren. In case that's not clear, let's put it this way. She has no child. When we think of the promises of Genesis 3.15 of an offspring of woman to crush the head of the serpent, well, that rules Abram and Sarai out. She can't have the promised snake-crushing male descendant to defeat Satan and, and bring us back to paradise. No more, these are the generations of lists, right? It ends here. Talk about a poor candidate. This Abram is a nobody going nowhere. Frankly, I'm not sure why Moses is telling us about Abram. There is no way he could be the right choice for the task at hand. Well, Tara's story ends in Verses 31 and 32, they tell us of his death in a land called Haran, no relation to his deceased son. They had left their homeland in Ur with their small crew and settled in this land, Haran. And there Terah died, in verse 32, at 205 years old. So the generation of Terah has ended. Chapter 12 will tell us more about why the move, but, but consider Abram. Abram the nobody, worshiper of false gods without an heir, nobody with nothing in the middle of nowhere, hardly the man we would pick for the job. And for that reason, 
That's exactly what God does. God calls nobodies and promises them great blessings. Let's read our next section, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And our our second point, God's very great promises. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Imagine it. Minding your own pagan business with your tiny family and out of nowhere the creator of the universe speaks to you without introducing himself, tells you, go. And goes on to make fantastic promises about what he will do. Promises so great they encompass the whole earth. No? Can't relate? Neither can I. We might read past it, take it for granted. We, we know the story, it's familiar. I, I, I try to imagine this. For all we know, no one since the death of of Noah has had faith in Yahweh. We we just have no record of that. We can hope for his sons, maybe, who, who saw all that God did, but we're not sure. For some 400 years, no word from God in this account. Maybe the, the story of the flood is still being told, but certainly not in worship of Yahweh. Then, All of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, God speaks. And he speaks to you, a nobody, nowhere, with nothing. I think for us in in 2021, this would be like real aliens coming out of all the backyards in the world to yours and giving you a very incredibly important mission then beaming out of there without anybody knowing. Nobody would believe you. You probably wouldn't even believe it yourself. This is incredible. But what we read here is is real. This is history. And stranger even than fiction. God comes to a nobody and calls him. He talks to Abram and gives him very great promises. It might be unclear from the narrative where exactly Abram is when God spoke to him. I think, I think maybe Genesis 15, 7, but, but certainly Acts 7, verses 2 and 3, make it clear that, that Abram was still in, in Ur when God spoke to him. Listen to how Stephen summarizes it in Acts 7. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Stephen's summary is helpful, gives us some clarity. What we read in in chapter 12 happened before the final verses of chapter 11. They're the reason why they initially left Ur in verse 31. I think the reason Moses put 31 and 32 first is, is just to end Terah's life before moving on to tell us of Abram's journey. So back in Ur, God speaks to Abram. His speech is is short, just just three sentences. It contains a command and and a number of promises. The command, the first word, is simple. Go. Leave Ur. Leave your homeland, your family, and your relatives. Abandon what is comfortable and safe and go to a new land. 
And notice, God doesn't tell him where he's going. Just that he's going to show him. That's the command. Then God gives Abram promise upon promise. I'd I'd group all of these promises into three. The promises of of a land, of seed, and of, of blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. First, the the land. There at the end of of verse 1. He is to go to a land, he says, that I will show you. God promises to to take him there. If Abram is to be a great nation, well, great nations need a country. But again, Abram doesn't yet know where he's going. Abram will will learn in time, but, but not anytime soon. The, the readers, those who Moses is writing this account for, do know. Remember, Moses likely wrote Genesis right on the edge of that land, promised to Abram, right as they're about to, to finally inherit it. We call it, for good reason, the promised land. It's taken hundreds of years to inherit, but it all started here, Genesis 12.1. Through, through all the twists and turns the rest of, of Genesis and all the next five books of the Bible is all about the promise of, of getting into the promised land, the land here sworn to Abram. Well, those books are not just about the land, but, but they're also about the people who go into that land. And that's, that's the next promise we have here, seed. In verse 2, seed. What, what he says there in verse 2 is that he will make him into a great nation. He'll give him personal blessing and a great name. All these, these things mean, without saying it, that God is promising him descendants, children. Do you recall the first blessing given to mankind in the Bible? Genesis 1.28 To to mankind made in his image, God blessed them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So to hear that the blessing that God promises to Abram implies being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth. I call this seed because that's how the the King James puts it, but, but it just means offspring. God is promising to this barren couple for whom it should be impossible to have children that a great nation will descend from them. It also implies that the kings will descend from Abram, that he has royal blood. God will reiterate this promise to Abram describing his children in Genesis 15. Number the stars if you can. So shall your children be. It will be years and years before this promise even takes its first step with the birth of their son Isaac. And then hundreds more before that one son becomes a nation. But but land and lots of children are not the point. The point is there at the end of verse 2, right? Into verse 3. It's it's to be a blessing. God is giving land and seed to Abram so that he will be a blessing. And as people relate to to Abram, they will also either be blessed or cursed. He is now the focal point of blessing from now on. Dishonor him and be cursed. Bless him and be blessed. God goes so far as to say at the end of verse 3, as the the focal point of blessing, that, that all families of the earth will be blessed in Abram. This blessing will be universal. But but one more thing to notice, and I don't think it's coincidence. Five times in these verses, God mentions blessing. Five times. Listen to how one Bible commentator suggests its significance. The promise of blessings corresponds to the fivefold appearance of curse 
in the earlier telling of universal history. What what he means is that the blessings match one for one the curses found earlier in the book of Genesis. God had cursed the serpent, the soil, Cain, the earth, and finally Noah curses Canaan. Five curses in Genesis 1 through 11. And now, countering the fivefold cursing, a fivefold repetition of blessing. God's intent from the beginning was to bless all of humanity. He created a good world for his people, filled with all kind of abundance, but most of all filled with his presence, the source of all blessing. But the the realization of that blessing was postponed by sin. Because of Of his holiness, God will not be in the presence of sin. He casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. It cursed all of creation. No more blessing, only curse. But he has also, in mercy, promised to undo the evil of sin. Here in the promise to Abram is is the promise of the reversal of the curse. As the hymn says, he comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. This is a promise not just for Abram and his family, but but for all families of the earth. God has chosen Abram, the nobody, out of all peoples of the earth to work through him and his descendants to bring about blessing for which he created the world. Land, seed, blessing. Promised to Abram, the nobody, who is now somebody, it seems. These verses contain what what is known as the the Abrahamic covenant, the, the third covenant that we've encountered in the Bible. First with Adam, then with Noah, now with Abram. In time, we'll we'll get to Genesis 15, where this promise is made formal in a a ritual of of covenant. But this this promise, this command and and promise are are truly step one in the, the history of redemption in the Bible. What God has promised in Genesis 3.15 is now finally in motion, working its way out in history through through Abram. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who makes fantastic and gracious promises for no other reason but his own goodness. Genesis 12 comes after hundreds of years of silence. Nothing in in Abram, not in, in any man, prompted God to come and make these promises. It wasn't in exchange for some worship and sacrifices that that God's been lonely without in heaven. It wasn't a deal to make Yahweh better than some rival gods. No. God acts in grace with very great promises because of who He is. He is a God of grace. He has promised from the beginning to to bring a snake crusher, one who would restore blessing to humanity. And we see here in Genesis 12 that he is faithful to his gracious promise. It's It's God's nature to bless. These verses, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, they're they're like an ocean of blessing cascading in in wave after wave on on the patriarch and his children and and all nations through them. And the gravitational pull moving those waves is God and his love. A God like that deserves your worship. Yes, yes, he demands it by right, He is our creator to demand our worship as he will. But friends, he is also worthy of our worship. Worthy of our devotion, adoration, and 
and service. Behold your God. See him in these verses in in his grace, through his generous promises, and, and give him what he deserves this morning. Your worship, the adoration of your heart. That's what, that's what Abram did. When God revealed himself to Abram in these verses, his response was faith and obedience. God calls nobodies, promises them great blessings, and empowers them to obey by faith. Let's look at our third point in chapter 12, verses 4 through 9, Abram's very great faith. Let's read, starting in verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Well, there it is in verse 4. God says, go. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. In verse 5, he he gathers his wife and and nephew and everything they own and, and head off to Canaan. Immediate and unqualified obedience. And and remember, God doesn't or sorry, Abram doesn't know where God is is leading him. He is leaving country and family to go somewhere he has never seen in obedience to God's command. I I think it helps us to understand the magnitude of of Abram, of what he did, to to know how far he went. It's about 700 miles from Ur to the land of Haran, and then another 700 miles from Haran to Canaan. So what is described in in two verses, four and five, is is nearly 1,500 miles That's like if if you walk out the church this morning and head west until you reach Denver, Colorado, you'll have traveled a similar distance, though his route wasn't quite so straight. All other allegiances to land, to family, to comfort give way to this higher allegiance at the command and promise of Yahweh. When he gets there in verses 6 through 9, he does something like a, a walking tour of the land from north to south. God appears to him again in verse 7 and tells him, this is it. You've arrived. This is the land that I will give your offspring. The promise confirmed. Twice as he goes, he, he builds altars, little places of, of worship and dedication to God, like he's claiming it for Yahweh. Announcing to the Canaanites who it is that he serves. Well, and of course, that's, that's the problem. There at the end of verse 6, the Canaanites are already in the land. It's not his yet. There are already people living there. But the land is as good as his by faith in God's promise. Even if he hasn't inherited it yet. Friends, in these verses, we we can't miss what is going on here. Abram's very great obedience wasn't because obedience came naturally to him. He loved serving Yahweh. No, this is a pagan, idol worshiper. He knew nothing of Yahweh before he heard the command, go. 
Now, his very great obedience, traveling 1,500 miles with everything that was dear to him to a land he had never seen, was fueled by great faith. Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith passage, looks back on the life of Abram and sees that that his very great obedience was the outgrowth of, of his faith. Listen to Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abram obeyed. By faith, he saw what he couldn't see. This is how the pastor Kent Hughes summarizes it. Abram's obedience was a monumental act of faith. He was a pagan. He was advanced in years. He was settled in his pagan world. He was the only one in his culture who had heard God's word. But on the basis of hearing alone, He risked everything to follow God. Well, we have to ask, what fueled fueled that monumental act of faith? What was the the very great promises of God? Land, seed, and and blessing from a God who, who makes fantastic and gracious promises for no other reason than His own goodness. Stafford Baptist faith is only as good as its object. Christians aren't just people of faith, as if faith by itself is what we're after. No, faith by itself is, isn't a virtue. Only faith like Abram's in the very great promises of God is the fuel for very great acts of obedience. Like Abram's, our walk as Christians is by faith, not by sight. When we follow Jesus by faith, it's a a conviction of things not seen. Abram didn't see the land, but he went. Even after arriving, it was an occupied land. He didn't yet have an heir, and he wasn't yet much of a blessing to the nations. There is so much that we too don't yet see. But we are called as Christians to live with the conviction of things not seen. And the basis of that kind of faith is God's faithful word. Abram, on the basis of hearing God's word, obeyed. We, too, can consider what God has promised in his word as already present, based on the faithfulness of the one who has has promised. And the truth is, unlike Abram, we have have so much more proof of God's faithfulness. We have, have 66 books full of accounts of God's faithfulness that he always keeps his word. You know, take just the the three promises that that God gave to Abram, land, seed, and blessing. None of them fails. Abram first gets a plot of land when he purchases a a burial site for his, his wife, Sarah, a deposit in the land. Abram dies and eventually his family leaves for Egypt. But, but one day through Moses and Joshua, they come back, they inherit the land. What about the seed? Well, it takes decades, a terrible attempt to do it himself, but but Abram, Abram too, has has a son, and that son has sons, and one of those sons has 12 sons, and those sons have, have many, many more and turn into a great nation. And that family, well, they bless the nations, 
Joseph will one day save the nations from famine in Egypt. Solomon will be so wise that all the nations come to admire his justice. Each promise God fulfills. He is faithful to his word. But but all of these promises and, and God's faithfulness to them lead more to than just a plot of land in the Middle East and a, a prosperous nation. In fact, it is, it is not just those born of Abram that are his descendants. It is, it is all those who share his faith. It's exactly what we read in Galatians earlier in our service. Paul the Apostle, thousands of years later, reflecting on God, how, how God was faithful to his promise to Abraham in all who share his faith. Let me read for us again Galatians 3, 7 through 9, where Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God Preach the gospel to Abraham. All who have the same faith in, the, in God's very great promises are, are the seed, the sons of Abram. We too receive the blessing promised to him. And in fact, the promises made here in Genesis 12 are, are truly and, and finally fulfilled in not just in Israel and their their nation, but in the long-expected son of Abram, through whom blessing comes to all nations. Galatians 3.16 puts it simply. Now the promises, that is the promises of land, seed, and blessing, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Catch what, what Paul is saying. He quotes Genesis twelve seven, God's promise that the land would go to Abram's offspring. Not offsprings, but offspring. God is making the promise to one, to Christ. God's faithfulness is most fully and finally displayed not just to Abram and his descendants, but this son of Abraham, Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abram, through whom God gives land, seed, and blessing. Christ inherits not just a patch of land in the Middle East, but is king of all nations. His blessed disciples will inherit the earth. They go to all nations and bring his kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. And we await that kingdom from heaven when it will cover the earth. In Christ, all those who have faith, no matter who they are descended from, are adopted into his family of the same heavenly father. And in in Christ... That blessing comes to all families of the earth. By faith in him, we receive the blessings of forgiveness of sins, of adoption, of eternal life. We are justified, we are sanctified, we are glorified. And those blessings come to us because Jesus finally reversed the curse. Not just Fivefold, but, but truly wherever the curse is found. Genesis 12 is, is a step in the long journey of God restoring the blessing lost at the fall. God in his mercy had promised to crush our sin. And he did that finally in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us on the cross. 
There our Savior suffered God's wrath, the the punishment that, that our sins and rebellion deserve so that we we can instead receive all the blessings that Jesus deserves by his perfect obedience. God raised this son of Abram three days later to show that, that his sacrifice had been accepted. We can now have right standing with God, acceptance and eternal life, not because of our very great acts of obedience, but because of his very great promises fulfilled in Christ and made ours by faith. Christ is the one through whom universal blessing comes in faithfulness to God's promises. It is in Christ that we receive all of what God promised to to Abram the patriarch. Our promised land is the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to a holy city built by God's own hand where peace and justice reign. In him, we have the seed of a a family of all the saints perfected. It is in Christ that we know blessing restored in right relationship with our triune God in the abundance of a new paradise forever. Christ is is now the focal point of all blessing. It's as you relate to him that you are blessed or you will be cursed. Brothers and sisters, even as nobodies, like Abram, the least likely candidate, we have very great promises from a faithful God, proven and secured for us at the cross of Christ. So we go now with the promise of his power in our hearts, fueled to obey as we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning that you call nobodies like us that you give to us very great promises and empower us to obey by faith. Lord, we thank you that you have been faithful, not because of of our deserving, but because of your gracious nature. This morning, Father, we give you the praises of our heart, the adoration of our lips, the service of our lives, what you deserve, for you are good. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk by faith as our father Abram did. Lord, you take your word as good as done. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.